If it was illegal to say stupid things into a microphone. Why must you be so stupid? These guys would be doing life without parole. Hey, everybody, we're back from prison. Why do we keep encouraging this kind of behavior? It's the Breaking the Ice podcast with Josh Dolan. You know, we could, like, go to jail for this. Along with Mike Shue and Isaiah Moscahanna Bonsa Mana Blitz Boskowitz. Whatever the hell his name is. So, um, did did you guys finish the comedy store? Oh, God, Josh, Josh has watched it twice, three times. I have watched okay. it in full, and it's... How far are you along? I got one episode left all right so you're past the point where tom was was the guy who headed up the union if you will to go on strike right yeah 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 just such a tell me you didn't love that thing that thing was so good yeah i i can't wait to see what the last episode but i i am now completely obsessed and fascinated with mitzi shore right right and like why why her why the maker gave her it's like why did did god give clive davis or Ahmet erdogan the golden years you know because she was in the right place at the right time and unless i'm wrong here josh you're the historian she was married to a guy and all she wanted no. in the divorce was that place and then i'm not she talking became... about i'm not talking about running the store i'm talking about where and how did she figure out how someone would do especially not being a comedian herself right True. that's the thing True. it's True. like so that's my question i you know i know how she got the store and stuff and and thank god she did because now i'm trying to imagine if she didn't what the world literally the like popular culture and entertainment would be like now if she was never born yeah right so you wouldn't have people like richard pryor or David Letterman, or they'd be different people, or right? Jay, would be. or Robin Williams, right? They would have, they would have gathered, they would have gathered at different places. It was, it's, it's those, it's those moment in times where that place was available, and they all went there. Now, certainly, other places opened, but wow, wasn't that? Now, what were the years, Josh? You know better than I. When it really went, it stopped and went downhill bad. That was, was the 90s. yeah, that was like all the 90s, almost right up until when I 2000. went out there. When when I was in Los Angeles, that's when it started to turn back around. Because when I went out there, the the Laugh Factory was the the hot spot. That was like if you're a comedian and you want to make it, you go to the Laugh Factory. And so I think it was like right up until 2011. Um. Yeah, pro- yeah, 2011-2012 is kind of when it made a comeback. And then uh, it kind of had like a second golden age or like a second like amazing era. And then COVID screwed that all up. So now we're back my, to the it's almost my, my obsession is like, like how her ability to spot something. Right. Like, what did she look for? That's, that's what I want to know. That's like oh. what, you know, and maybe we can ask Tom. Well, it's almost it's almost got to be like a Johnny Carson or a David Letterman or someone like that that or 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 a a Lauren Michaels that has that that smell Mm -hmm. that goes, yep, you are that or it's like, that's true. Go back back to radio, a music director in the day long before almost even our time that could hear it and go, right, that riff right there that John Paul Jones did or someone did in Zeppelin turns into this a magical thing. Right, right. But she didn't have a team. But we can no. ask. We can ask. We can ask this guy. This guy might know a thing or two about the comedy store. 
Maybe. How's it going, yeah. Mr. Dreesen? Hi, Mr. Dreesen. How are you, sir? What's going on, guys? I'm so glad you're out of prison. I heard that you guys got bailed out, and that's why I wanted to do the show. I'm still in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I only have 30 minutes. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us again. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, I had a lot of fun last time. I really did. I had a real good time. I can't believe it's been two years already. Yeah, it seems like it seems like seven and eight years. It didn't seem like just right? two. <laughs> uh, these last two years don't really. It's weird. It doesn't. It does, I'm not going to say it doesn't count, but it's just a little blurry. And and, and Mr. Dreesen, I didn't get a chance to meet you, but it's it's an honor, man. It, and and I tell you what, I just finished up watching that Comedy Store documentary, and wow, 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 wow. It was already wow, and now it's even more wow. So. That was pretty cool, that documentary. It was a bit emotional for me because um, if you, I don't know if you know or not, or if you read the book, but I had not performed there in over 40 years, ever since the strike. I gave my word to this young comedian who later committed suicide, you know, um, Steve Levekin. He was so concerned because he was calling in for spots after the strike and he wasn't getting on. And mm -hmm. he said, you know, I don't want you to leave the group, Tom, because I had said goodbye to everybody. I was on, going on the road again. And uh, he, he pleaded with me, you know, don't leave the group. I said, look, she said, he said, if you leave the group, we won't have the power uh, and she won't give us times. I said, it's in the contract that she can't retaliate against anyone who walked the picket line. It was in our contract. He said, but I called in three weeks in a row and, and I didn't get any times. And, and it was really forlorn. And I said, Steve, I, and I was in a hurry. I had to catch a plane. I said, Steve, I promise you, I won't go back to you go back. And he was all nervous. And I got my hands on his shoulders. I said, Steve, look at me. I won't go back till you go back. Okay? And Okay. Mm -hmm. He called in for times the next week. And, uh, and as you know the story, uh, she, he didn't get any times. And he went and committed suicide. He went on top of the Continental Hyatt House next door to the comedy store. And he wrote a suicide note. My name is Steve Lebetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. And he dove off the roof and landed, you know, short of the comedy store on the ramp there on the drive to the parking lot and it just after that it just so disgusted me this whole thing was about paying comedians that I just had it I did I, did, I, I said I'm never going back to that place again I'm so sorry I even got involved in this thing but 40 years go by Mike Binder contacts me and Peter Shore Mitzi's son who I like very much I respect him a great deal they said would you come back we're doing a documentary and would you come back and talk about it. And so uh, they sent a limousine for me and uh, you know all that kind of stuff. And, and then Mike Binder actually took me over there with a camera crew, you know, and uh, we, uh, and I went on stage and, uh, and I also did the interview with him, you know. Well, it's, how do you feel about what, uh, I watched the, the documentary also, what Buddy Hackett said on the, on the Tonight Show, they showed him saying, well, they should, they shouldn't be concerned about money. They should be grateful that they have a place to work on their craft. I, I couldn't agree with them more, except for the part about the money that, you know, uh, I used to say that you want to break in new material, do it at Caesar's palace. When you're working, don't do it at the comedy store. It could kill your career. You know, you know who's in that audience every night. These are talent coordinators in that audience every night at the comedy store, the Johnny Carson show, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, uh, dinosaur, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. Canada were sending telecoordinators down for shows they had up there. Every night, someone was getting discovered. You were going on stage with polished acts for the most part. But when Buddy started out, 
they worked the Catskills and stuff and they made money. You know, um, I agree that you, that, you know, that, that you need a place to develop. Look, you know where I'm going on this weekend? I'm going over to mm-hmm. the Factory this weekend and I'm going over to the comedy store. You know, I got my still work on new material all the time. You know, they, you, know I, you don't get the kind of money that, that you get when you work Vegas and stuff. But he's right. You're always, you know, uh, comedians are in a constant state of development. But when you're charging money at the door to see these comedians, you know, I only thought it was fair. And so did Bob Hope and Richard Pryor and a lot of other comedians who supported us, you know. But Buddy was right. He, he had his own opinion of it, you know. He, he said she put up the money. She actually won the comedy store and, and the divorce. And, and, and you're right. The guy who opens up a comedy club, he puts up all the money, puts up the risk, you know. But once he starts, once he gets even, once he gets his money back, at least, don't you think he should pay the talent? You know? I was just telling these guys, we were just talking about the documentary. I, I am now so curious and so obsessed with Mitzi Shore. And I'm trying to, my question is <laughs> like, and it's hard to answer this question because it's, it's, I think it's like the same you know, question is, well, why, how did Pavarotti get such a great voice? And how is, you know, Freddie Mercury from Queen such a great front man? And it's something you can't, like, what, how did she get this ability to spot talent? Because it seems like she, I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine a world where she was never born and trying to imagine what entertainment would be like today. And it just touches everything you know, from the comedy store, movies, television, talk shows, podcasting, I mean, everything. And I'm trying to imagine what the world would be like without that. What, what is it that, that she had? What, what, what was she looking for? Well, let, let me start with two things. Bud Friedman started the first, the, you know, where comedians go on stage for free in New York. Only he did singer, comic, singer, comic. When, uh, when uh, Mitzi was, she was married to a comedian, Sammy Shore, for years. She knew the world of stand-up comedy. Sammy bought the, the comedy store. And he had, um, you know, the comics drop in there and do 45 minutes or an hour. You get up and do whatever you want. It was one of those, <clears throat> you know, joints where you come in and have food, sandwiches, and anybody get up on stage and do a, a monologue. But it would go on for 45 minutes or an hour. When Mitzi won the comedy store and divorce, which she did brilliantly, she came up with a, a Ford assembly line type thing, you know, a comic every 15 minutes. If you would have told me when I first started out, there were no comedy clubs when I first started out. We worked all nightclubs. If you would have told me, I want you to go on stage tonight with five other comedians, I'd say, are you out of your mind? What do I want <laughs> to follow five, 10 comedians for? <laughs> right. We only got one comedian on the show. You know? But Mitzi streamlined into like a Ford assembly line and it worked. She was smart enough that you know, every 15 minutes, boom, another comedian, every, you know, first show, second show, and even a late show. So she was really good at that. Now, you say, could she spot talent? Every comedy club owner in America thinks they know what comedy is. And the truth <laughs> is, they're full of shit. You know, oh, can I say that? I'm sorry. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, this yes. is a podcast, Tom. Go off. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, you know, they know what's funny to them because comedy is subjective. They know what they think might work in their club. But, you know, I mean, you know, Bud Friedman spotted Andy Kaufman when no one thought this guy could be anything. But Bud Friedman, it tickled his funny bone and Kaufman became a star later on, you know. Uh, Mitzi knew what worked at her club. You saw the documentary. She, Louis C.K. was doing specials, was selling out all across the land. But he wanted to work at the comedy circus that had such tradition. She, he went up on, on an open mic night, was supposed to do like five minutes. 
she looked at him. He didn't even get the first line out. She said, turn the light off. I don't like that. <laughs> so yep. you say what makes her spot count? She, while a lot of great comedians developed, it, it was timing too. I'm not going to say Mitchie didn't do good things. First of all, I like Mitchie a lot. I, I, she was very shy. I would go on radio shows promoting a comedy show and I'd take her with me because she was, she was shy. So with me there, I could keep the conversation going and everything. And, and, and so I liked Mitzi a lot. I really did. And, and I, I'm sorry that we had this rift that, that I ended up representing the comedians, much to my dismay sometimes, um, and, and that she was the opposition. You know, I, I thought I could talk her into paying the comedians $5 a set. You know, I thought, I, I told you, you, you know about it from the book. I went to her one night when, during the midst of all this, everybody talking about going on strike. I said, Mitzi, you're charging $5 at the door. Charge 6 let the comedians have that one dollar. If 200 people show up, they split 200 bucks. If, if 400 people show up, they split 400 bucks. And that's 20 comedians. You know. I thought that's the answer. She said, no. And I said, no. She said, they don't deserve to be paid. Now, I was numb because I thought it was about money. If it was about money, we resolved that issue. It was about control. And, and uh, she didn't want to give up that control. And, and uh, you know, anyhow. She was in many ways kind to comedians. She they, they stayed at her home. Uh, she, if, if they were short of money, she'd give them money, but she didn't want to pay them at the door. And that was hard for me to understand, you know. And, uh, and I was making six figures. I wasn't, wasn't like I needed the money. I was turned with Sammy Davis Jr. You guys know the story. I had six weeks of, of, of Sammy. I had like over $50,000 worth of work. And those days that I turned down to walk the picket line. And Sammy understood, and when, when the strike was over, he put me back on the road with him. You know? Well, you were representing family. You were, you were, you know, as far as you were concerned, this was family, and we need to all stick together. Do you think the did the relationship ever mend past that with Mitzi, with you and Mitzi? I never went back to the comedy store, but uh, Argus Hamilton, a while before she passed away, of course, got her on the phone with me. You know, and God bless him because he's a good friend too, even though he was on the other side. But he 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 adored her. And, uh, and so we talked and, 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 I, and I told her that I, I feel real bad that I thought I was doing the right thing. And of course she thought you were doing the right thing, but it's all history now and it's over. You know? uh, a lot of, I mean, it's been 45 years, no, oh. what, 79, it's, no, it's been 40, 40 years ago or more. And there's still rifts between those who crossed the picket line and those who didn't, you know. Wow. Was Argus Hamilton the guy who hit Jay Leno? Well, supposedly hit Jay Leno with his car. <laughs> no. No. Who did that? That was Argus great. Hamilton, that part was great. Yeah, Argus Hamilton was the sweetest, kindest guy in the world and still is. And still at the comedy store, uh, emceeing most nights at the, in the main room. He's a wonderful guy and a brilliant writer, by the way. Uh, it wasn't him at all. He would never, it was Biff Maynard. Okay, all right, all right. Biff Maynard, if Biff Maynard wasn't at the comedy store, he might've been robbing a liquor store. <laughs> he was a tough guy and and uh and and uh and i think there was rumor he did some time at one time but he was a tough guy and and, uh, and a hothead you know and him is and he I still went, is he still with us I, I just googled biff maynard and he looks like a character no he passed away <laughs> did he but before he died he admitted yeah. that that they threw a monotop cocktail on top of the improvisation and burned it down jesus you know? oh my god wow <laughs> And, and, and the reason for that is because we had a spy inside the comedy store, a waitress, who was just a sweetheart. She, she would, whatever, when Mitzi would have a, a meeting with her loyalist, 
after the, when we went on strike, 18 guys and one girl crossed the picket line, or the strike would have been over in 24 hours. It would have never lasted, but it prolonged it. They weren't big names or anything like that, but they were able to fill the slots, you know. And, uh, and we had a spy inside whenever she had a meeting. And so she told us that at one of the meetings that, um, that Mitzi said, the comedians are talking about going on strike. And in the back, Biff Maynard said, comedians won't go on a strike. They need a place to work. Mitzi said, well, maybe they'll go over to the improvisation. And Ali Joe Prater said, what if there was no improvisation? Oh, jeez. Wow. They burned down the back of the club, but they, the front stayed intact. So Bud Friedman came to me and said, Tommy, if you guys, I want to rebuild my club. I can't shut down. If you guys strike me, I, I, I can never do this. I said, but we don't want to go on strike. No one wants to go on strike. You know, we just want the comments to be paid. Will you sign a memo that when you rebuild, <clears throat> we'll work your place. When you rebuild, you'll sit down and negotiate a, a fair price. He said, absolutely. And he signed the memo. <clears throat> and so when we were out on the picket line, we would tell people, please don't honor this, the comedy store, but we are working at the improv because he's agreeing to pay us at some point. Now, it seemed like there was, <clears throat> it was a big thing. Um, during the strike that everybody was waiting to see what David Letterman was going to do. Was he like on the fence, whether or not he was going to go on strike? No, he was always with us. He, he, you know, the first night he guest hosted the tonight show, I was with him. He left there after his first time he was walking and Fred de Cordova said, Dave, we're having a post meeting. He said, I can't, I'm walking the picket line tonight. He walked over the picket line. And, wow. And, 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 and that night, according to, Argus and some of the guys on the other side that Mitzi looked out the window and saw Dave on the picket line with us and it broke her heart because she loved Dave Letterman. And right. she thought the world of him. And, and, and uh, but when she talked to him, he said, Mitzi, these are my friends. These are the people, you know, and I got to stand with them, you know. I, I do have to say, though, in that documentary, David Letterman's starting to look a little bit like Fidel Castro. That's an aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I told him the other day, we had dinner the other night. He was here. And with that beard, I said, are you getting it? Are you Santa Claus at Macy's this year? <laughs> he, he could be. It's so funny. You think 32 years on the air. Now you're off the air and you want to go around the street and be like a normal person where people will mock you, take pictures with them. So what do you do? You grow a beard down here so everybody knows who you are. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> you put a spotlight on yourself. He still wants the attention even though he doesn't want to admit it. Come on. I don't know. I don't know about that. Very shy guy. And, and I've got to tell you a funny story. I don't, I don't think I told you guys this. Well, when you're, but he called me a while back and said, Tom, every time you do an interview or I do an interview, and people say, how did we meet? We always tell the same story, that you came off stage at the comedy store. It was my first night out in LA. I was in, in, in the lot up in front and you came off stage and I complimented you on your set and we started a conversation and became friends. I said, yeah. He said, well, it's boring. I said, but it's <laughs> He said, I don't care, it's a boring story. From now on, you tell people, and I'm gonna tell people that you were on stage at the comedy store, you came off stage, I had stolen some of your material and you beat the shit out of me in a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> now, why am I going to tell a story like that? He said, because it's a funnier story. I said, you got 32 million fans. They'll be chasing me to airports. <laughs> now, two weeks go by. He calls me. He said, do you know the governor of Illinois? I said, I met him, but I don't know him. He said, well, my wife, Regina, has a friend in Chicago, in Illinois, whose son is autistic, a grown man. And these autistic adults have there's some property that they plant corn, beans, and tomatoes. 
And when it comes into fruition, they give it to the homeless. And supposedly the state may take that property away. And I'd like to talk to the government. I said, I know the president of the Senate, John Culleton. I said, let me call him. I called John and tell John. John said, oh, tell Dave, don't worry about that. We're taking care of that. It's going to be okay. I said, he was telling me about some statute. I said, John, could Dave call you and you tell him this because you explained it better? He said, sure, I'll give him my number. And I said, oh, by the way, John, when you help Dave, tell him the only reason you're helping him is because Dreesen beat the shit out of him in the parking lot. Of the <laughs> uh, he said, okay. Now, 10 minutes later, my phone rings. I go, hello. He said, didn't I tell you that's a better story? <laughs> that's a better story. Exactly. <laughs> All about getting people's attention, not the nah, not necessarily the truth. Who was that person in the documentary uh, that had the riff with Joe Rogan? The same thing because he was upset about a comedian stealing Carlos Mencia. Yeah, Mencia. Yeah. yeah, 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 and and he was banned from the comedy store for a while, mm. or or didn't come back, whatever it was. Um, but but look what he's done. What a, what a wonderful thing he's done. You know, God bless him. <clears throat> Now, so Tom, go, oh, sorry. Go ahead, you. No, no. Go ahead, Josh. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, going back to um, when you said when you first started out, there were no comedy clubs. What made you get into comedy? Like, what what did you look at and you're like, that I want to do that? Because when I f first started, it was because my dad was always dragging me to comedy clubs. It was the <laughs> Comedy Central. But if there was no comedy clubs or comedy happening, like around what what made you want to get into it well first of all let me digress on your part you you didn't tell the truth the truth is you were watching the tonight show one night you saw me and you said shit if he can do that i can do that <laughs> if he can do that shit i can do it so i was in the room, I do that. <laughs> you, you know what 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 made me what got me into it i never ever thought i'd be a stand-up comedian it was the furthest thing from my mind I was in a civic group called the JCs, Junior Chamber of Commerce. Um, and it was young men of action from ages 18 to 36 in communities all over the United States and 22 foreign countries. And you attack the problems of the community. And by doing that, they have leadership training programs, you know, uh, and, and they teach you how to, how to form a committee, how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, uh, subcommittees, how to Robert's Rules of Order, how to conduct meetings and speak up programs, how to speak in front of an audience. And so I joined that group. I got very active handling the problems of the community because I had been a delinquent youth and I, I had eight brothers and sisters, lived in a shack, grew up poor, you know, and, and as a kid got in some problems, street fights and stuff like that. At age 16, quit high school. And then I went in the Navy for four years, got a high school diploma, came back to junior college. But I wanted to help kids like me that grew up on the poor side of the town, you know. So I got, I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse. I had never been a drug user, but that was the number one problem in our community as it is today. And, and I based it a lot on humor, getting the kids laughing, playing music, and, and helping me with this project was a young black man who graduated from Norfolk State College, E.I. DuPont, recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep. He joined the JCs, and the, the night I proposed a program, he wanted to work with me. Anyhow, long story short, we worked on it went into the classrooms and the children, uh, you know, they, they adapted to us right away because we were talking to black and white children. And so uh, they, Tim and I, a young black, a young black guy, a young white guy, we, got, we, we played off of one another, got the kids laughing, played music, and we planted the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. The program became very successful. In 50 states and in 22 foreign countries, JCs use it as a model program through their publications. And one day leaving the classroom, 
a little eighth grade, eighth grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black, white comedy team intrigued us. No one had ever done that before. So we became America's first black and white comedy team. Tim Reed later became Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati. Yes. He was on a show called Sister, Sister. But we'd never been on stage before, neither one of us. There were no comedy clubs. So how could we work? We went to a jazz club one night and begged the owner, could we go on after the jazz group takes a break? And we went on and we bombed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're in a jazz club. <laughs> we, we went 100 miles an hour. We didn't care whether there were laughs. We wanted to remember our lines. So we hired we're the comedy team at Tim Tom. He's Tim, I'm Tom. He's Tim, we're different. <laughs> we just got in and we drove it. You know, we, we were talking 100 miles an hour. We finished a 20 minute set in about four and a half minutes, you know. <laughs> We bolted off stage and the owner, we got the owner in the corner. How'd we do? How'd we do? What'd you think? When he said, awful. He said, I don't know how you did. We never gave you a chance to laugh. Come back tomorrow and slow down. We went back the next night and got big laughs. And it was like an epiphany for me. I, I, uh, I was hooked. I said, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Uh, I, I, I think I told you guys a story before, but I wandered aimlessly after I came out of service. I had a wife and three kids going from job to job. And I actually was praying. I'm in the bar at two o'clock in the morning with all my buddies and, and I'm saying, I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belonged. And I prayed, I actually went to the church when I was an altar boy, I went to the same church and I prayed. I said, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? Cause this can't be it. And, and then when I got that first lap with Tim and Tom that night, it was something I had written. It was like one of those old B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun burst through and my whole being went, oh yeah. Oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a comedian. I found it. And the next day, I couldn't sleep that night. It was a Friday night. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Hello, Tom. Jason Hotline. We'd love to do the show. Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, I was just on his website. I just I just called that number, Tom. I want to book you for a show. Are you, are you available? It's probably my agent. It's the first time he's called in five years, and it just so happens I'm in the middle of something, and I got. And he keeps calling you. He's like, Tom, it's the first gig since COVID. Let's go. He's probably like, Tom, <laughs> don't do the podcast, Tom. Don't do it. Yeah. Yes, if you, if you run across breaking the ice, don't do it. It's awful. Did yeah. you ever get? Did you ever get to do? You do obviously the Tim and Tom show sounds amazing, and I'd love to see footage of that. Did you ever get any appearances? And I, I would think I would know this on WKRP in Cincinnati at all. Yeah, I did. I, I went on as a, I was a uh, reporter from an all black magazine. Okay. Only white guy there. And I'm <laughs> doing Venus Flytrap, who was the only black guy and an all white thing. And, and uh, I, it, I started pouring my character, poured my heart out to him. Do you know what it's like being at one place where everybody's one color and you're another and all mm -hmm. that stuff? You know? But to, to end at that last story, that at that moment, I knew that that's what I wanted to be, a stand-up comedian. And, nice. and I, 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 I got up the next morning. It was a Friday night. I got up the next morning. I went down to the church. And there was no one in church. It was a Saturday morning. <clears throat> and I prayed. I said, God, now I know. Now I know what I want. If you let me make my living as a comedian, I promise I'll do charities. I promise I'll give back. I was making all these promises, you know. And, uh, and that was 51 years ago. On my 50th anniversary of that date, that was September 1969, I went back to that church in Harvey, Illinois, Ascension Church. And I gave the sermon on the power of prayer. And I wow. told the audience, the congregation, I knelt right there and, 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 and I prayed for, and all my dreams have come true. All my prayers were answered, you know, and, uh, and, and, and it's, 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 this is my 51st year in show business. It, it's just been, a, it's a great journey, uh, ups and downs and rejections and 
knockdowns and, and all sorts of things, but it's still the greatest profession on the planet. And, and the answer to your question, a, sh a short answer, there were no comedy clubs in those days. So we worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, black owned, black operated nightclubs. And we worked all white nightclubs too. We ended up on the Playboy circuit for years. So we'd go places where I was the only white guy within five miles and we'd go places where Tim was the only black guy, you know. And we, we, we did 11, anywhere there was racial tension, we performed. We, we did 11 prisons in one year. We did the county wow. jail in Chicago three times in one year. We, we, high schools, colleges, wherever there was racial tension, we would go there and not preach, we just made them laugh, you know. It's, and, it's amazing that, I, I mean, you, it's, it's first of all amazing at that time in 1969, 1970, that you guys were uh, the, uh, a, a black and white duo. And it's amazing, you were going to places where there was racial tension. I mean, that, I mean I, that's like, uh, I can't even imagine the things people would say to you guys, you know, just because, just because you were working together. You know, it was just because at that time, that just wasn't something that was never done before, one, never done before, two, you just didn't do it at that time. Well, not only that, at that time, if you looked at, at that history, the, the Civil Rights Act was passed just a few years before that. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. There were race riots in every major city in Chicago, including the neighborhood I grew up in, one of the largest riots in the country, in the south side of Chicago in Harvey, Illinois, where I grew up at. Uh, there, there were large race riots all over. Students were protesting the Vietnam War across the nation. America was in turmoil, in utter turmoil. And yeah. that was the backdrop. In the midst of all this were Tim and Tom. Now, all over the country, and it's ironic that 51 years later, we're still talking the same shit. Right. Yeah. We need say nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah. we, they were saying, we need better race relations. You know, we need more dialogue between the races. We need more race relations. Well, to have race relations, you need to have race relations. Tim Reed mm -hmm. and I were having race relations on stage. You know, uh, we were having the dialogue America wasn't having. We were poking fun at every stereotype out there. And th when they saw us up there having a lot of fun, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times in, in that six years with Tim Reed that it, we'd go to a college or a high school or something, a young black kid would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend that I want to reach out to, but if I do, the brothers are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tommy tonight, they'd say to Tim, I'm going to reach out to my white friend. Then a white kid would come up and say, you know, I got a black friend that I really like, and I want to reach out to him, but the white guy's going to call me names. But after watching you and Tim, I'm going to reach out to my black friend. More times than you'll ever know, we heard that, you know, around wow. the and, and to this day, that means more to me. Sounds corny and all that bullshit, but it means more to me than any possible award you could ever give us. You know, yeah. for, You could um, resurrect it now, now. I mean, when was the last time you were with Tim? We get together all the time. Uh, they're doing a documentary on my life now from my book, which we haven't plugged, by the way, guys. Uh, still <laughs> Hold on, you know you're old when there's a documentary about your life. God bless you. Oh yeah, but here, now I'm, gonna, I'm gonna choose another view here if I can choose another background. See Do it. I choose this background, where, where, where your virtual background. Uh, I'll do something here and screw this up and I won't be on here anymore. <laughs> okay, let me there is no air, this is the internet. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> Anyhow. I was well, the, the reason I was asking about last time you got together, I mean, look at this, look at this format. Look at how, look at how stuff is delivered now. Have you and Tim thought about getting together and, and doing a podcast or just like talk and just you're somewhere, he's somewhere, you just get on like this and just do it and just keep on talking about the race relations that you're talking about. I think that would be very meaningful. 
Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, Tim Tim is busy. He's, he's a, he flies overseas to Europe and Nigeria and Ethiopia. He's always doing um, uh, these uh, lectures and stuff like that. And, and, and he's directing and he's acting. And then I'm, I, I've got a one-man show called um, The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh, a 90-minute show that I do in theaters around the country. Uh, and, and plus, you know, we, we're just, and we're doing the, this documentary on my, on my book, I'm saying, and in that documentary, there's a huge segment of Tim and Tom. And then Good. there's people that Netflix are s- supposedly interested in doing six one-hour miniseries of Tim Reed, a, a young guy playing me and a young guy playing Tim. And I would love to see that. Oh, that'd be yeah. awesome. Yeah. You know, again, we, we, we did things. They would run us out of town on a rail today. <laughs> we were, no, but you know what? You know, they, but good. Put it, I mean, put it out there. It's almost like you, you say that, but then someone like Seth MacFarlane still exists doing Family Guy because it's put in a light of, well, that's, it's, again, it's your comedy. He's comedy. I'm surprised Family Guy. I love Family Guy. They cover everything. They pick on everybody. It's not like it's meant to insult it's comedy i'm being sarcastic i'm joking like having someone like you and a tim not to take up more of both of your times doing these things but like you've seen some shit you've seen some shit in the toughest times like times are tough now but now you take away social media and 24-hour news cycles and you guys were going into fucking places that were just like oh this is red hot but you went in you did it and we're like we gotta go before we get killed yeah (laughs) Right. Sometimes it, we almost got killed on the fourth time on stage. A guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face, oh, and geez. he tried to keep the Jesus out of me. He was a big former football player uh, that played in the NFL, and and uh, and I, I boxed him. I was in the service, but he outweighed me by hundred pounds, and <laughs> you'd have gotten killed. And, and, and I, I I got brutalized. Uh, you know, <laughs> we both got got hurt pretty bad that night. But anyhow, that was our fourth time on stage. And we were getting in the car that night and I felt like my chest caved in where the guy was trying to crush me. And, uh, and I, Tim was scarred up and Tim looked at me, we got in the car and he said, welcome to show business, you know, <laughs> well, welcome to show business. And the things you were doing at the time were not just Caucasian males getting up, doing whatever you were like, guess what? This shit's not like that. It is black and white. There are multiple races and various things. And, you know, I can only imagine how people would react today, but guess what? Fuck them. Just like Joe Rogan says, just like all these comedians say, just like people say, it, it's Bill Burr does it all the time. It's in that, it's in the, it, Mike, uh, it's uh, not Mike, I'm sorry. It's in the, it's in the documentary. Sorry. It's Joe, it's, these are jokes. These are yeah, jokes. You know, I'm trying to make you laugh. You know, you know what? And, and the, 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 that you have to explain that. I know. Exactly. Pisses me off. The I know. direct police are the worst thing that ever happened to this country. You're right. We have a second amendment. Thousands of men and women died. So we have the right to say whatever we want to say in this country. We can't say fire in a crowded theater, but we have that right. Thousands of men and women died for that right, the second amendment. Right. So you, when you stifle, when you tell somebody what they must say, you know, who are the, first of all, let me start out. Who are these people? Mm. You know, we don't, they have a corporation, they have a board. Can we go before their audience and argue our point? No. Who are the people who sit in basements and type on, oh, I don't like what you say, or I'm going to boycott that product that, that is on your show. Keyboard warriors. The, 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 the stand-up comedian is the last bastion of freedom of speech. When you start telling us what we have to say, your next step is to tell us what we have to think. And that's mm-hmm. when we become fully blown out communist. And America, mm-hmm. from, to my knowledge, isn't there yet. You're working on it. 
you're doing the damnest you can to make us go so far left that we're communists. But as long as there's stand-up comedians like Chappelle, like Jim, like Joe Rogan, you know, like uh, uh, Bill, Bill Burr, Burr, you know, as long as there's comedians like that out there, it, it, free speech is going to last. You know? That's why I think there'd be a place, there would be a place for uh, Tim and Tom revised. It would be fucking refreshing. Because is there any argument? Motherfuckers, look at the screen. Black gentleman, white gentleman. And now we're talking. Yeah, but you know what they would do? What the left loves to do. They would label me something and they would label him something. Let them. Fuck it. Take the comments off the posts. <laughs> Just do it. Yeah. I, by the way, I, I don't... <laughs> At my age, you think I give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) There's the promo right there. You want to hear the promo? Go to Tom Dreesen Rants on Political Correctness on the Internet, and I'll give you a brief of what I'm talking to four comedians, and I'm saying just what I said to you. You know, who are these people? We know who the Democrats are, the Republicans are. We know who the the Ku Klux Klan is. We know who the independents are. We know who... Uh, we don't know who the koalas, the moose, the elks, but we don't know who you are, and we keep apologizing to you, and we don't know who you are. So here's what I have to say to you: Kiss my black ass. <laughs> <laughs> you you actually were on um, a very politically correct show um, back in the day called the Dean Martin Roast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you only knew what happened in the beside the roast. You know they had to work clean in those days. You know, we always had to work clean, but off stage, you know, there were some very funny guys. What were those after parties like? <laughs> you know, they said anything they wanted to say in those days, but right. anyhow, you know, going back to the politically correct police, you know, that I want them, I want them, I want people to look at that on the internet. I tell everybody, go there, because I want somebody to come up to me and say, you can't say that. I'll say, why can't I say that? Well, you said, kiss your black ass. I said, yeah. Why you can't say that? I said, because you don't have a black ass. I said, I think I have one. I got a guy down the street that thinks he's a woman. You know, and, and you say that's okay. I'm okay, that's okay. I think I got a black ass. What's what's amazing to me, and I, I think I mentioned this last time we talked, that since you since since Tim and Tom, there hasn't been there's not a lot of comedy duos, but there hasn't been, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, there hasn't been an interracial comedy duo since you guys is that right that speaks volumes doesn't it that we yeah. were yeah. that we were america's first black and white comedy team and history shows we were the last that's yeah. volumes, doesn't it now you're right there aren't a lot of comedy teams today when i started out there were a lot of comedy teams but there isn't enough money in comedy in the earlier stages to feed you know i had a wife and three kids tim reed had a wife and two kids we were married guys who had families and we were struggling to, to make a living. We, we, it, it was really a, a hard time, you know. Uh, so, so there aren't a lot of comedy teams out there, but another black and white comedy team, uh, again, in those days, they didn't have social media. You know, the social media today sets out to destroy you. you know, they, oh, it's fucking awful. If you're, by the way, if you're opposed, we used to be able to debate our issues, but if you don't think like I think, then we call that misinformation. And we delete yeah. you from social media. <laughs> and huh, by the way, everybody says to me all the time, how are you going to make it today, Tom? I give, as you guys know, I give motivation talks to, to, to America, to corporate America and to uh, universities and stuff. But I have a special one uh, to comedians called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. 
and it's a motivation talk. I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor and, and, and to try to motivate the comics. But one of the questions is always asked of me is how, how did you make it in your day? Well, everybody knew in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? So if you have <laughs> Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. So right. we had to go, how do we get on Johnny Carson? We had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad and the kids laugh. You had the right clean material. There was no cable in those days. So that was where you went. 26 million people watch that show every night. One appearance mm. on that show, your career was launched. Freddie Prince did one appearance, you got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance, CBS signed me to a development deal, took me out of the unemployment line in one day. You know, so, and I never stopped working. As you guys know, I did 61 appearances on the Tonight Show, so I never stopped working from that day. But today, they ask me how you make it, and it's a social media. You know, you can, Dane Cook got on MySpace and started selling out coliseums, arenas. I mean, 15,000 seaters from MySpace. So yep. if, if MySpace or Facebook or, or any of those other social medias, Twitter or TikTok do not like you, something you said, bingo, you're banished from them. Well, they're the paparazzi. They're almost, uh, they are in a different way, the paparazzi of the world. So if you, you know, you love and hate the paparazzi, if you're a star, you love it when they follow you and you love it when they say great things about you. But the second you fuck up and they chase you down, that's mm. part of the deal. But it's, it's not part necessarily of the that if you fuck up, it's just if they don't like you. Because yeah, true, true, true. reality is just out the window. Like it doesn't matter oh, if it's it's true or not. It's all about how, like you watch the the videos of these comedians where they're like all of a sudden they said something that the blogger didn't like all of a sudden it went from telling jokes to making statements and then they show the video and the whole crowd's laughing it's just one person in the back with a blog that didn't like it and then right. you're you're on the death row yeah. We've just got, it's awful. You go, you've gone into this world of like, I'm just Googling things while we're talking and various things. Tim and Tom come up everywhere, which is great. The closest second is salt and pepper, just so you know. Uh, as, that's, it's that's, that's, that's I know even, that's not even it, interracial. This is, I know, but salt and pepper. So it's, this is how oh, stupid right. Google is. By the way, when Tim and I started out, there was a black guy and a, and a white guy that sang, and they called themselves salt and pepper, not salt and pepper. But they were ah. salt and they were only doing it for like a couple of years. They, they were singing, you know, they weren't a comedy team, you know. Uh, Maybe that's who it is. No, but the point is, it's all, all this, all this thing is, when you think about thing being Google or thing being Instagram or TikTok or MySpace or Facebook, it's a headline. And Mike and I and Josh have talked about this with many guests on the show. It's the clickbait. It's, it's the what's that headline that you're going to see? Boom. Tom said this. Okay, Tom said something at some point in a different context of something, but you grab that one little thing and pin him to the cross because of it, and that's the end of it. Like, that's not even fair anymore. There's no – you said earlier, Tom, we'd like to debate. Debate is a healthy back and forth. And then at the end, we either agree or we choose to disagree. That is so far gone. Well, you know, all we are as comedians is we view the world and we go out and we say, oh, I see that. And you go out and you write a funny bit about it. Now, right. if you, I'm just trying to make people laugh. There's only one rule in comedy. Be funny. It's <laughs> only rule. There are no rules in comedy. Be funny. Don't put rules on us. You know, oh yeah, you can be funny, but don't say anything. Watch what I'm doing here. This is what you do to a comedian. You say, 
come on the show, by the way, and don't say this and don't mm. say that and don't say this and don't say that. You see what I just did? I put you in a box. Once you can't I put, be funny. You're no longer a comedian. You know, you're, you're no longer a comedian. You know, right. and, 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 any, and the comedians that allow that to happen, you know, again, we're the last bastion of freedom of speech. We have to just tell them bullshit. Every time they tell us, don't say it, say, I'm, I'm you know, and, and you have to risk, you know, what could happen to you, you know. Uh, again, like I say, at my age, you know, it's easy to say because at my age, you know, you can't scare me anymore. I had my nose broke twice. I mean, I've, I've been knocked down. The title of my book is called Still Standing. I've been a stand-up comedian for over 50 years. So it's a double entendre. But I've also been knocked down, physically knocked down in my life many times and got back up again. And, and that's what the book is. I'm still standing. You tried it. You tried everything you could, but I'm still standing. <laughs> talk about talk about that book. Talk about you've got great background. You finally got that looks good. Talk about the book. Well, you know, years all my all my comedy career, wherever I went, or even not in part of comedy, if something funny or poignant happened, I'd go back to the room and journal it. And through the years, I collected all these stories. You know, I, I toured with with. Um, you know, Tony Orlando and Don. I toured with Mac Davis. I toured with Gladys Knight and the Pips. I toured with Natalie Cole. I toured with Smokey Robinson. I toured with, with um, um, a, a black singing group called the Dallas from my hometown. I toured with, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. for three years. I toured with Dean Martin. And I toured with Frank Sinatra for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. So I collected a lot of funny stories and moments. And I keep writing them and poignant stories. And so I kept logging them and journaling them. And then eventually I had a, a file like this. And so I decided to write a book about it. Uh, two guys, two young guys contacted me and they said, hey, we got a book deal. We'd like to write a book about your life. I said, I've already written it, but you can help me with the narrative. And they <laughs> did. The book is now on Amazon. It's got over 355 star reviews. I'm very proud of the book. It's well written through the help of the other guys with me. And, and I'm very proud of the book, but it's, it's my journey. It's the Tim and Tom years. It's, it's the poverty as a child, you know, um, uh, eight brothers and sisters living in a shack it's, it's really a book about triumph and and i i think every film or every book should make you when you finish it say i can I, that lifted me i can do it too you know i had alcoholic parents i i had everything in the world going against me ever becoming a success and and uh somehow i i, I through the years i became a success in my endeavor you know but and and that leads me to a story I will say to comedians, and I say to you, I'm a success. And other comedians say, how could you call yourself a success? You started out with David Letterman and Jay Leno. They're two of my good buddies, but you start out with them. And look what they've got, millions of dollars, and they got all these cars and everything. I said, I never was in competition with Jay Leno or David Letterman. There's a great Hindu proverb that says, there's nothing noble about being superior to another man. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better son than I was last year? Am I a better father? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? My only competition in showbiz has always been myself. I listen to my tapes. I still got tape recorders here you know, that I listen to. How did I do? How can I improve? That's the only competition you have as a comedian, your former self. So. Well, let me ask you that. It may have been the moment you, you said earlier when people laughed at what you wrote and you knew you wanted to do this, but when did you realize that you like, like for instance, in the comedy store special, um, Damon Wayne said, I realized I was a comedian when I was afraid not to bomb or I was afraid. I was, I was not afraid to bomb. 
Like I could go up there. I didn't care if I was bombing or not, or if I had a great night, it didn't matter. Cause I know I would just keep going forward and keep getting better. And then like Joe Rogan said, I knew I was a comedian when Mitzi Shore said I was funny, you know? And, and what, what, what moment was that for you when you were like, I'm, I'm really a comedian now. Well, you know, when you start out and stand up, as you guys know, you, 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 you bomb, you do good, you, you bomb, bomb, and, and you do good, 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 and then you bomb, bomb, boom, good, and, and then pretty soon you did 10 shows in a row. Whoa, you're starting to get consistent. You know, you're a pro in golf or anything else. When you start getting consistent, and I started consistently getting good, then I'd, I'd maybe have 20 strong sets, and then I have one bad night. But by that time, I knew it wasn't always. Al Jolson said, there's no such thing as a bad audience, just a bad performer. Al Jolson, oh, shit. I met many bad audiences in my life. you <laughs> <laughs> side with that one. <laughs> but, but, so my point is, when you get consistent, but one of the things that really, you know, I mean, when I really had that, that, that I am a bride was that first Tonight Show. Because no matter how much you do, and I had been funny for years off with a comedy team and by myself, but no matter, the pressure on that first Tonight Show is enormous. Mm. 26 million people watching that show. Agents, producers, direct, all these casting people watch that show. My mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois watching the show. If I bomb, I can't even go back home. <laughs> you know, you're behind that curtain, man. And, 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 and you're going to walk out in front of 20, an audience and 26 million people. And if it doesn't work, if you ain't got what it takes, you, you know, there's that song that one moment in time, it's got such a classic lyric in it, but that one moment in time where all of my dreams are a heartbeat away and the answers are all up to me. I'm standing behind that curtain and my dreams are a heartbeat away. When he opens that curtain and I walk out there, all my dreams are right there. And, and the answers are all up to me. And what good is a break if you're not ready when the break comes? You know? So that, when I did that first Tonight Show, they called me back for a second bow. You know, I got eight applause. I went through the curtain. Johnny called me back. I went back out again. And, and Johnny gave me that little circle. I mean, I can't tell you what that, I knew that night that I had arrived, if I couldn't handle that. And then of course, years later, I'm opening in front of Sinatra in front of 20,000 people and, and 40,000 in Hawaii. And they didn't come to see me, they came to see him. But yeah. you pulled it off, you know. You pulled it off. You got it. You know. Uh, it, it, I, I said, went all the way around the Mulberry Bush to say consistency. When you start becoming consistent, that's when you know you've arrived. Now, how this is it cool? God. Oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna say, how did you end up linking up with Frank Sinatra? Did he see you on the Tonight Show? And he was like, "Yes." He heard me <laughs> on the podcast. I think it was. He heard me on. Oh, on this show, yeah. <laughs> I, I got that that tour by being glib at the right time. I was working at Harris uh, or Caesars in Lake Tahoe with Smokey Robinson. And uh, Frank was appearing next door at Harris. And so I had worked Harris many times with Sammy Davis and with different artists. And so I had, I had a whole week with Smokey Robinson. I could have went to see Frank on any night. For some reason, I chose this Wednesday night to go over and see Frank's show. I didn't even change out of my stage clothes. I finished my set and shot over to Harris, which is two casinos away. I went running into the showroom and the vice president of Harris Hotel was standing out in front of the casino, uh, the front of the showroom with a, a, a heavyset guy with a cigar. And he called me over, he said, Tommy, come here. I went over, he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognize the name, that was Frank Sinatra's lawyer. He said, and a very powerful guy in our business. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. And I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. 
And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard that a million times. Hmm. And he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. And he looked at me, he said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50,000? I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50,000? <laughs> 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 oh, I like this kid. You know, and, and <laughs> a week later, they gave me one week with Frank at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'll, I'll get my picture taken with him. I'll hang it in every bar back in Chicago. <laughs> and <clears throat> the second night I was with him, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday. He set his knife and his fork down. He looked at me. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few of the dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. <laughs> I said, yeah. And it turned into 14 years, 45, 50 cities a year. A, a friendship he later in life was like a father to me. I stayed in his home six times a year. When he died, I was a pallbearer at his funeral and I oh. spoke at his funeral. And, and I miss him every day of my life. He, he's an amazing amazing guy to know and be around i mean performing with frank that's like possibly one of the biggest entertainers ever but you've you've worked with a lot of legendary performers and i remember the other day or yesterday whenever it was i never know what day it is anymore you you were saying <laughs> that you um you got to work with jack benny too i mean that's oh, wow really well, what, what happened was when I, whenever people say to me who what comedians influence you Two comedians influenced me. One was Jack Benny and the other was Richard Pryor. Two totally different comedians. <laughs> Pryor, I came from a neighborhood like that. I grew up on the streets. I'm a street kid. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. When Richard was on stage, he was like talking to my, he's like being on the street corner with all the guys I grew up in. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. I played basketball on an all black basketball team. I played football. I was a running back on an all black football team. There's a lot of funny stories about that, but that's the environment I grew up in, shining shoes and bars and stuff. And when Richard spoke, he was talking to my soul. Jack Benny, what I loved about Jack Benny, I think a person is an artist in any endeavor, bartender, truck driver, bricklayer, whenever you make your work look one word, effortless. Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music, you will be my song. You say, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. Jack, <laughs> Benny, Jack Benny made comedy look easy, effortless. He walked out and made it look, it was a conversation, not a presentation. And he made it look easy. That's a true artist. And I wanted to be a comedian like that. I wanted to walk out on stage and make it look easy. You know, as a, even though no matter what was going on inside me, you know, I, there's an old uh, uh, bit of philosophy that says, act as if you are and you will be. So I would start to act. Even when I was young and nervous and, and scared of going up like all of us do when we started, we started out. I would act as if I was this confident, effortless comedian. And slowly and slowly, I became one. So it's, Talk about it's, another, uh, another confident person. Listen, I wanted, I wanted to read this. This is about your book, Still Standing, Tom. This is a quote, and I think you know this is from guys. See if you know this. Quote, this is the life story of a street kid who turned the hard times into funny monologues on national television and stages across the country. Whether on stage or just sitting around with him after a round of golf, he never fails to make me laugh. I guarantee you will too. Who said that, Tom? Uh, some unknown actor. I tried to help his career and said, you want to put something in my book? It'll help a, a guy named uh, Clint uh, Westwood. No, Clint Eastwood. I, th I think it's Eastwood. <laughs> Eastwood. Never heard of him. <laughs> yeah. No, no. <laughs> well, that just goes to show, again, the more people that you've been around, you've touched, you've, you've, you've collaborated with. I mean, that he doesn't advance praise. Him and uh, Gary Sinise do this 
at the beginning of your book. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's the kind of people that you've touched and the kind of impact you've had on people. How, how does that feel? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm, that I, I, I have those kind of friends that I, you know, David Letterman wrote the forward to the book, the forward that David wrote is hysterical. He left one line out that I can't repeat, but, but, uh, uh, you can hear, you can hear. No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he's just crazy, but, but he's my crazy friend, but it, it touches me. You know, Frank Sinatra introduced me to Clint Eastwood 35 years ago and we became instant friends. I don't know why. I make him laugh, you know, but you made him laugh. Yeah, he's, he's a great friend. But I, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, there's, there's, oh, I'm, I'm trying to think of some stories I could tell you that, that I'll, I'll tell you, <clears throat> he, um, he put me in the movie Trouble with the Curve. He cast me in the film. I had to audition, I had the screen test, but I had a few lines in the film. And what it was, it's Trouble with the Curve, you know, he was a baseball scout and that he, uh, found out he had macular degeneration, his character. <clears throat> and so he, finding that out as a baseball scout could end his life as, as a baseball scout. With this knowledge, he goes into the corner bar and the bartender started, how are you doing? He said, not today, I'm having a bad day. And my character, I come up and I said, how about a game of Keno, Gus? He said, not today, Rock. I said, oh, come on, one game. He said, God damn it. I said, no, you know, no means when somebody tells you no. I said, okay, okay, what crawled up your ass? He said, old age, and he walks out of the bar. So we did the scene. But I asked him, I flew in the, in the Georgia with him to do the scene. I said, could I do two takes? And Clint never wastes film. If he's got it, he's got it. But I gave him a new punchline. He said, let's do it. So I took it on Letterman. And I showed, Letterman showed the first clip. And he said, oh, that's nice. You did a scene with your buddy. I said, yeah, but he felt losing his eyesight wasn't provocative enough for him to be that angry, that he needed something deeper, something more provocative to be angry. So we did a second take. He said, okay. And in the second take, he shows it to the audience. I said, how about a game of Keno, Gus? He said, not today, Rock. I said, oh, come on, one game. He said, I said, no, damn it. You don't know means when somebody tells you no. I said, okay, okay. What crawled up your ass? He said, I had to watch a David Letterman show last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, and I, and he, he did the line perfectly, and, and, and Letterman loved it. Letterman, the audience loved it. They, they, and then you beat the shit out of him. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> you know, you That's know, awesome. in, in summation of what you just said, I'm a live performer. I love live performing. When I was growing up, if you meant if you said show business, you played a word association game with me. You said baseball, I'd say Cubs. You said love, I'd say mom. You said show business, I said Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. To me, they were what show business was about that live performing, that exciting live performing. So and at the end of my life, that Sammy Davis Jr., that Dean Martin, and that Frank Sinatra thought enough of my performance, of my comedy, that I could grace the same stages with them. You can close the lid on me. I, don't, I never cared of CBS, NBC, NBC. I didn't care of movies. I'm a live performer. I, I've done acting. I've, I've done those other things. But that isn't what my passion is. Mm. Live stage, live performance that those three guys thought enough of me and Smokey Robinson, you know, for years, who's a dear buddy of mine, it's come and come fly with me, come on the same stage with me. Shit. That, that just meant the world to me. You know? I don't That's think awesome. we'll ever have like stars, like the Rat Pack ever again. Like I, I miss those guys so much and I wasn't even alive when they were alive and I, I miss them. <laughs> <laughs> Or if we do, they're few and far between. The problem yeah. is again, we we go back to that we go back to that world of 
oversaturation of, of, of opportunities. There's no one singular stage or screen or lens you look at anymore. I mean, anyone can take an iPhone and think they're a star. And even if they're not a star, they're still filling up the water jug to make it like, Jesus Christ, I just want to go see a show. But I think they're there. They're just not, it's few and far between now. Well, it's sad. The thing too is when you saw Frank, Sammy, and Dean on the stage, William Morris didn't put that package together. <clears throat> no agent said, hey, I got a great idea. <clears throat> One of you three guys go perform go perform together they went to perform together because they loved one another they first of all they loved their business and they knew their business they paid dues and dues and dues and they knew how to take command of that stage and they knew how to perform but most of all they loved one another and that showed in their performance that they really liked one another Uh, oh and night after night after night after night after night after night on every opportunity that's just that's listen Tom, that's why we have almost 30 million people looking at this podcast because we love each other. What? And <laughs> oh, Josh didn't give you the numbers from this morning. Over 30, 30, did you over say 30 million? What? Over 30 million. In You're my calling head, us the Johnny Carson of podcasts. In my head, it's 30 million. <laughs> Frankly, it might just be three, but I hear no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. They they built they built that report. It's so much respect goes out to guys like that, guys like yourself that that worked. I'm not saying people don't work these days. I'm not saying that at all. It's just a different thing. It's, it's, it's it just happens faster. It so happens it faster because of the digital age, because you can put yes. it right out there. You can put it, Bam. you can instantly load something up to YouTube, you know, yep. whereas then you had to go to where the people were right. Tom, right. you had to take it like you did, like you, like you said with you and, and, and Tim, you went to where you thought you would do well. And you had to go there. You had to get on the road and take it to them. Yeah. You know, as opposed to now, you can just I can just sit right here and, and do something on my phone. I don't have to leave this room. You yeah. know, and that builds a different kind of character. There's no substitute for experience. There's no substitute, especially in comedy, to learn right. to get comedy timing down, that rhythm and all that stuff. There's no substitute that live performing does that. And that's what it does. By the way, Josh did mention one thing he mentioned how much you love one another but he wanted to clarify he said not that prison sort of love (laughs) (laughs) that's why we do this on zoom he gets handsy you know right i mean (laughs) listen covid covid actually was good because josh can't touch us anymore yeah Yeah. well you know that's that's just court ordered but (laughs) (laughs) so what's it all right so you're promoting the book still standing so so talk about what's What's coming up with you? What's on the what's on the agenda for Tom Dreesen here in the future? No, I'm I'm still going on the road. And in fact, I, next week I go to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, um, to perform for a friend of mine, Jerry Colangelo, who grew up not too far from me. Jerry owned the, as you know, the Phoenix Suns and the, and the Arizona Cardinals. And, yep. And 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 in the end, he, you know, he he was the he, I think he the something with the Olympic team. He's a great guy. He grew up in Chicago Heights which is a little south of me, where I grew up at. And, and so we've been friends for many years. I'm going to perform at a black tie affair for him. Then I'm, you know, my one-man show, I've got a 90-minute show called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. And uh, it's, it's stand-up comedy, but then I go to a bar and, and I segue to a bar. And uh, there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the stage. That's Frank's drink of choice. And I tell a real funny story at the bar and the audience laughs and all the lights go out in the theater and on the screen, Frank Sinatra singing, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. It's like he's singing to me, I'm the bartender behind the bar. And, you know, 
I set him up, Joe. I got a little story. And now when he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road, he goes off screen. And now a spotlight, it's me. And I'm in a bar with all these people. And I've come home. And I tell them the first time I heard that voice, I was 10 years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago. And he was on the jukebox. And I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox in the south side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So I take wow. journey. And I take him through the Tim and Tom years and, and my struggling years and to the Tonight Show and the Sammy Day. I take him through all that with laughs. But I get him to the funeral and I actually have him in tears. And then I turn right around and I close with a funny monologue and, and have him back again. And then I, I toast him with the Jack Daniels and say, I wish for all of you, but Frank Sinatra wished for you. The very last song that he ever sang is the best is yet to come. Good night, everybody. And Frank is singing. The best is yet to come as they're leaving the theater. And that's my one-man show. And I'm doing that a lot around the country. Um, and, and, and then I, motivation talks. Um, my the documentary, I've got to finish this documentary. I, we've already filmed Smokey Robinson and Joe Montana and Tim Reed came over and- uh, That's and, your agent. He keeps calling. I mean, look at, the, look, at, <laughs> look at the calls you're getting from this podcast. You're welcome. You know, I, it's true. You know, I can't believe I, I, sh I should have. Sh ooh, I, I didn't even shut this thing off. Good thing this thing. See, <laughs> I, we 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 put this out. We put all your numbers out there. So you're welcome. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was shut off and I can't believe that wasn't shut off. <clears throat> but anyhow, that's good. That's business. You better have an answering machine attached to that thing because business <laughs> is coming. And Boom. I got, I got uh, and I'm doing motivation talks. I'm really I'm really busy. Never mistake activity for achievement, but I'm busy. You know. Good. Good. Is that is that is that uh, is that ninety minute piece coming to Boston that you know of? You don't know how hard I'm trying. Mike Arugioni is a good buddy of mine. I don't know if you know Mike. The, the, oh God, yeah. He's oh yeah. He's a dear buddy of mine. Lives in Winthrop, and he wants me to come there and do it for his charity. And we've talked about that. And a, a, another friend of mine is a general manager of the Colonnade Hotel. Oh yeah. He uh, uh, he wants me to come there too. Uh, his name is David Kalala. He wants me to come there. And so I'm, I'm trying to get, to, I would, I'm trying to get a theater or get some cause to go there for, you know. That would be show, great. I worked Boston with, you know, Frank, you know, I, I worked Boston many years ago, the Boston Playboy Club on my own. And, and I, I worked uh, there many times. And then with Frank, we worked at Harbor Lights, um, the, the, you know, big arena, Harbor Lights. So, I, and I love Boston. I think it's a great little city. To, you know, good Italian restaurants. So. We'd love oh, to yeah. see it. Come, come up here to the North End. We'll bring the podcast down. We'll have you on the show. Let's go. Yeah, that'd be great. From your mouth to God's ears. You guys are my agents. Go to work. <laughs> I mean, listen, you just went from one guy calling you to three guys working for you. Let's do this. <laughs> what was the line? What was the line? What was it? Uh, if, you were to make, if you were to work with us for a week and we gave you 50, we'll flip it around. <laughs> we'll give you the 50. Come work with us. <laughs> I love that line. That's great. Uh, uh, it's, 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 uh, I've always thought when I started out that a good comedian can make you laugh for an hour. A great comedian can make you laugh and cry. And I only saw two comedians do that, Red Skelton and Richard Pryor, where they had the audience laughing and then they took them to a real dark place and had tears in their eyes and then they brought them back to laughter again. I said, whoa. When I saw yeah. Richard do that one night, I said, that's gutsy. I, I don't know if I could do that, but I, I've done that in my one-man show where I take them to another place and then bring them back. It's really a challenge, but it, it's it's fun. And that's what we should do, challenge our our, our, our artistry, you know, challenge our, our creativity. 
were you there or did you see part of that uh, comedy store documentary when uh, Howie Mandel was talking about Richard Pryor coming out and just came out and just was, you know, he was, he was God. This was the crying part. He just pretended that he was God and he was, and he was basically, you know, cussing people out for, we, what do you mean? I right, bring up Martin Luther King. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean to happen to Martin Luther King? This one, that one, this one. And he just had people crying, dropped the mic and walked out. And he was like, what? He, okay, but you're exactly that. You could have me howling and then coming out and literally touching on people that God's coming out going, wait, you've made a huge mess here. Because I'm sure he'd say that about these times today. He'd be like, I left you alone for like a couple of centuries. And you just made a mess. Yeah. But that's it. That, that's that cut the comedy store crying. And then the next <laughs> comedian up is like, what the hell? Yeah, how do you follow that, right? Well, imagine if you imagine if you go from that God piece to like Sam Kennison to like, what the hell just happened? I, I saw Richard do something different. He was doing a whole set, and then he went into the bicentenary ten years, and he went into this old man, and he had people laughing so hard, and then all of a sudden he had them in tears, and then he took them to a real, and then he brought them back. Well, I, I never saw anything like that. You know, I got to tell you a quick Sam Kennison one night I was getting it about three weeks before he died. I was getting on an airplane, American Airlines, and Sam was getting on the same plane. And he turned around and he said to me, Tom Dreesen, Tom, you know what? You're a comedian and I'm a comedian. He said, you're from Illinois and I'm from Illinois. He said, but you got this terrible reputation of being a clean comedian and it's ruining your fucking career. <laughs> <laughs> That's said, awesome. I said, you know, you got a point there, Sam. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. <laughs> yeah. He screams uh, in your face and sits uh, down and gets a Jack and Coke. That's awesome. Uh, oh, yeah, my God. Guys, I got to run, believe it or not. Uh, there's another show I got to do. It's probably the guy calling me. In the other oh, room. yes. All right. Sorry about it. Well, we, we really love having you on. Yeah, uh, thank Tom. you. This, much, is, this is really fantastic. Your Your stories you know, your, your wisdom and everything. And we really appreciate it. And uh, we hope to see you and bring your show to Boston so we can come and, and, uh, and see the performance and, and, uh, and then uh, your book is available on Amazon, right? People can go yeah. there. Yeah. Or Barnes and Noble has them in stores in a lot of places, but Amazon will get it to you in two days. Yeah. I, Tom Dreesen's still standing. Go buy it. It's going to be yeah. worth it. Thank now, you, man. Thank now, you. Tom, Tom, do you, do you have your own podcast at all? Or there's a guy, no. In fact, tomorrow wants to talk. They've been asking me for years to do a podcast, and I really don't want to do one. But, uh, um, you know, because I, I, you know, I also want to go play golf once in a while. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, this, I'm the sales end of this operation. Would you do it with us? I'll produce first. it for you. <laughs> go play all golf. You have to do, all you have to do is talk about stuff. Yeah. That, that's what this guy wants to do with me tomorrow. He's talking the same thing. He said, Tom. He did a very nice podcast with me, but it was, it was, he, he talked to me about Frank and then he played a Frank Sinatra song. He talked mm -hmm. to me about, he played another Frank Sinatra song. Then he talked to me about Smokey and he played a Smokey Robinson song. He talked to me about Sammy Davis Jr. And I, and I told a story about all of the Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, all these people that I had performed with, you know, Mac Davis. And, uh, and then he would play a piece of their music. It was really interesting. Um, and uh, so he's the same guy. He wants to produce a podcast with me, but I, I, I don't, I just want to, you know, I just want to make people laugh and play some golf. Okay. Then here's what we'll do. We'll make people laugh and we'll play golf at the same time. Whoa. There you go. Now Are you in? But we Let's gotta, end on this note. Just say maybe. <laughs> 
maybe if there's a couple million in it for me and you guys will do it. Yeah. I can do that. I can do it. I'll call some people. We'll work. I heard, hey, Josh, Mike, I heard maybe. I heard yeah, maybe, I heard from maybe Tom too. Treason yeah, on good. this show right here. First right. guest, Clint Eastwood, whoever that is. <laughs> oh, yes. All should right, Tom. Call, should we call the show Larry, Moe, and Curly and Tom? Yes. Sure. <laughs> Hold on. As long as I I can be, I'd rather be Shemp. I'm a Shemp guy. <laughs> okay, so. no. Not Curly Joe? Whichever. I, I heard maybe. I heard Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I heard Tim Reed's going to come on, reenact WKRP in Cincinnati. I heard a lot of things in my head, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Tom. <laughs> uh, uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's just, I really enjoyed this. It's just a lot of fun. Well, this is what comedians do. After our shows, what do we do? We go hang out. You know, right. right. Doing this for years. Frank Sinatra loved to hang out. He never went to bed till the sun came up his whole life, whether we were on the road or off the road. You know, he liked the show was great, but he liked hanging out afterwards. Talking, having yeah. fun, reminiscing, just talking about what's yeah. going on. Like, that's why podcasts are so good. Thank you so much for yeah, coming thanks, on. Tom. Here. We appreciate hey, it, man. I wish you the best, and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. 